0: A quick disclaimer, this episode about cannibalism contains some fairly graphic content, so proceed with caution if you're squeamish. And we say this a lot during the episode, don't try this at home. Hi, I'm David Farrier. We're usually all about conspiracies here on Armchair and Dangerous, but this month, it's a left turn, or maybe a wobble in the road, or perhaps we're driving off a great big cliff. Because we're talking cannibalism. The act of consuming another individual of the same species as food. Now when a human does it, it usually makes the news. Armin Mivas is a cannibal. In March 2001, he killed a man and ate him, along with a glass of fine red wine. A crime... And amazingly, there are no laws against cannibalism in America. It's legal. The catch is, it's pretty much impossible to legally obtain body parts. Murder is a big no-no. But while I think most of us aren't doing it, we do think about it. We can't help it. Cannibalism is cemented in our pop culture.
1: Dr. Lecter, my name is Clarice Starling. Can I speak with
0: you? You're one of Jack Ross. From fictional cannibals like Hannibal Lecter to very real ones like Jeffrey Dahmer. He is pure evil, but you'd never know it by looking at him we're all weirdly drawn towards the idea of cannibalism. Of course, cannibalism happens all the time in nature. It's perfectly normal. Female praying mantises love nothing more than to bite off their partner's heads. They're very nutritious. But when it comes to humans, most of us simply don't have a taste for it. So right now, pour yourself a wine and slice up some meat as we prepare to confront our own mortality. On, oh, as usual, a giant thanks to Billy Klein for the sound design on this episode, and Bob Mervack for the theme song you're about to hear. Take it away, Bob.
1: Oh, boy. We don't deserve
0: you. you. We don't deserve you. (laughs) That's my resounding thought. Cannibalism. It's what the people want.
2: It's what we all want. They've been demanding it.
1: Goodness. David. We miss you, David.
2: I thought you were going to be here. Didn't you say April? April, Callie's coming home, and then we thought you were coming here.
0: Yeah, I'm leaving New Zealand on April 17th for the land of the United States of America. I'm very excited. Okay. Okay.
2: So, of course, I invited you to live with us. And then you have since yeah. taken us up on that
0: offer, <laughs> at least on the weekends, you said. Yeah, I think uh, weekends will be great. I've got a couple of bags that I've packed. It's got all my essentials in there. I'm not vaccinated. We, we can't get vaccines in New Zealand yet readily. So I'm going to get my vaccination in America, which I'm very excited about.
1: Yay! We're
0: finally proving to be good at something.
1: Yeah. You're doing what?
0: so well. Like it's so nice to see. I feel like things are going much better. Yeah. yeah. It is interesting. I guess it's probably a side
2: of the same coin, which is like we didn't want to do anything, and then we turned on like the war machine or something. I don't know.
1: Well, there was a, a transition of power.
2: Yeah, but the vaccine I... was yeah, the vaccine was coming though. We yeah, were I don't com- know if
1: the rollout would have been as good. I gotta give props where they're deserved.
0: Yeah, I feel like things have taken a, a marked turn and there has been one big change <laughs> in, in things. But I, I don't want to lean too heavily into it, you know, but it, yeah. it's a possibility. Yeah, everyone <laughs> has their own takeaway. Mine is that
2: the industrial might still exist here. We have a very competitive economy and you have a bunch of mega Goliath farm companies and they're going to get the job done. I also think that's a big part of it.
0: Yeah, no, I'm excited. I hear you get a little bit sick after the app, like sort of a day of sort of flu-y symptoms and then you're fine. Is that what you guys have experienced? It's been 50-50 in our friendship circle.
1: Yeah, I have had the first vaccine. Dax is getting the first vaccine tomorrow. But we have a few people who have got their second shot. And yeah, some people have been totally fine and some have had the whole flu situation. But yeah, just for like the night.
0: Yeah. Uh, Yeah, I'm looking forward to it. I'm going to embrace it. (laughs)
1: <laughs> yeah. It means your body's doing something, right?
0: Yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> I had a lot of fun with putting this episode together because I've been watching a lot of Hannibal over here in New Zealand. It's just, mm. It's just come onto Netflix and it's a show. I don't know if you've seen it, but it's about eight years old now. It's the most incredible thing. Have you seen it? <gasps>
2: Haven't seen it based on the Silence of the Lambs character, right? Hannibal Lecter.
0: Isn't
1: it a prequel?
0: Yeah, it sort of incorporates a lot of the story that's been told in the films. But it's done in like a very heavily stylized way. The cannibal scenes are more like chef's table or something. It's like the most beautiful imagery. All the actors are like beautiful and amazing. And it's all done in like this dreamy way. So... It's incredibly like graphic and full on, but it's also because it's shot so beautifully, you kind of just go along on the ride. And I, I'm blown away by what that show got away with because you know I'm watching it here in New Zealand on Netflix, which makes sense. But the idea of the show being on free-to-air TV with commercial breaks, yeah. it's pretty intense. But yeah, while I've been researching this episode, Hannibal has been like the perfect companion for that. <laughs> At any point, was it shot so beautifully that you were like, yeah, I would try that? Some of the cooking scenes when Hannibal was cooking up some ribs, some human ribs, I was like, that looks really, <laughs> really good. Of course, the problem being, um, to get those human ribs, that is problematic, and that's yeah. where the issue comes in. But that, I mean, I think that's part of what makes cannibalism so interesting is like the taboo around it, and why are we so horrified about the idea of eating people? Obviously, some people aren't as horrified, but I guess to balance out the episode. I've talked to two people. I've talked to Bill, who's written like one of my favorite books. He's a biologist. He's incredibly smart. And Bill Shutt has written this book called Cannibalism on animal cannibalism and also cases of human cannibalism. And he's like very sane and very together and very grounded. And so we're going to hear from him. It's an objective look at it, I would imagine. Yeah, he's got a sense of humor about it. But he started by studying vampire bats. He's kind of drawn to like... The darker side of biology and so this book was like a logical thing for him to write but to balance out his very objective view i tracked down a real cannibal nico claw in france mm-hmm. and he ate some people no okay. and so great yeah so he's less objective um, <laughs> okay, okay. so we're going to go objective oh and then we're well, going to go into that territory sure sure wait
1: real quick yeah. so in france it's allowed Well, you said in America, it's not illegal, but the murder part is.
0: Yeah, yeah. (laughs) In France, he went to prison and served time for murder, which was unrelated to the cannibalism. The cannibalism he partook in it was on shaky ground, but mm. he didn't go to prison for that, which okay. is kind of fascinating. Oh my God.
1: David, do you think that maybe, like, because you talk to him, he's going to, like, That's have a an infatuation with you, yeah, and then he might fillet you?
0: It was an unusual conversation, and, like, he's, I mean, we'll get to him, and you'll see, I'm curious what you make of him, but, like, he's quite likable, and I found myself laughing along with him a few times. Oh,
1: my goodness. That's kind
0: of your but then superpower. I had to sort of remember, like, oh, my God, this is real, you know? Wow. Well— you bring up an
2: interesting point right out of the gates, which is I've never spoken to a cannibal that I knew about, but if I were engaged in a conversation that you would have to consider like, hmm, do I look delicious to him? You're like, you're always evaluating whether someone's attracted to you or not, but you're not ever
0: imagining whether or not they're getting very hungry looking at you. Yeah. The the thing with Nico is he does tours of the catacombs. Ah, And so you do have the potential to sort of be alone with him in those situations. And if I think I was in that situation, I would be wondering, you know, I wouldn't be at ease.
2: And a mix of maybe offended he wasn't hungry to eat me. Like, I don't want him to (laughs) eat me. And also I would feel rejected if he didn't want to eat me.
0: Yeah, I I feel like that about incredibly religious people that don't want to convert me to their religion. You know, I don't Mm -hmm. mind it if people hound me because at least that means they care about me, you know? Oh,
2: I I have a good (laughs) friend. I might have told you this already, but I I have a good friend that was on a train ride with one of the Nexium people for four hours, a fellow actor, and they did not try to get him to come to the camp. And now in retrospect, he felt very offended by that, which I loved. Like, why wasn't I worthy of inviting into this circle? But can we parse out a couple things? Because I don't want it to get confusing. So on one hand, we have murder. That's its own beast we're all familiar with. But you could lay out like a moral thought experiment where you've hit a guy with your car, not unlike hitting a deer. Generally in Michigan, when you hit a a deer with your car, you go ahead and strap it to your hood. Hopefully make a meal out of it because it would be a waste otherwise. So you hit a human being. uh, They have no living relatives. It's said in their will. Throw my body in the canal, eat me. I don't give a shit what happens. Let's assume that's where we're at.
1: And, and, I'll add, then you're going to turn yourself in for hitting him.
2: This is what happened. This gentleman, he wanted to commit suicide, and he jumped in front of your car. So there's not going to be any legal ramifications. This was a suicide, and in his will, he said, you know what? Shoot me out of a cannon, drag me behind a truck, eat me. I don't care. (laughs) Yeah. Role play with my corpse. I don't care. So that's let's just evaluate it from that position first.
0: Yeah, I, I think it's a really reasonable question. And it reminds me of that case of that German cannibal who found, it's a, it's a bit different, but he found a willing victim back in 2000. I think it was like 2001 online on a message board. He found someone that wanted to be eaten. That was their wish. That was what they wanted. And so there was a cannibal. He met someone who wanted to be eaten. It was like a match made in heaven. But he's missing peace. <laughs> missing peace. The trouble with that was the cannibal did have to kill the willing participant. So that was murder. What you're talking about is something very different where someone has died in, a, in another way, but offered their body up. And I think that would come down to like defiling a corpse, probably. That would mm-hmm. be the issue that would come in. Well, I guess what I'm trying to suggest here is that. Other
2: than the gut feeling of that's wrong, I really can't mount an argument in that scenario I pointed out where I guess who gives a shit. Well, I don't, you know, I don't know who the victim is. I don't know what the moral argument against it would be. Do you have one, Monica, that you would mount right um, now that you would dance with?
1: Well, that's why I was saying if you hit someone with your car, but then you found out like, oh, he was fine with it. Yeah. But you'd still need to like tell authorities that you did it. Yeah. But could you eat them first?
2: Well, let's assume you contacted the authorities. They're like, hey, don't even worry about it. This guy had a suicide note on his chest. He wanted to get hit by you. And in the note, it says, please consume me or throw me off a tall building or push me through (laughs) broken glass. It doesn't matter what you do with my body. I'm up for it. That's where we're at. Is there a moral objection you have with eating that person? Or just a gut gross out feeling.
0: Yeah, I wouldn't have a personal moral objection to that. I think the big question of it is like what society would say about you in that situation and what all your friends and family and the rest of the world would think if that was placed in the open. I'd probably call you a foodie. (laughs) Call me a foodie. (laughs) But this was like, this was one of the questions, and maybe this is a good time to hear from Bill, the biologist, because we were sort of talking about why here in the West we're frowning upon cannibalism so much mm. when that is not necessarily the case with everyone else. So like, This is what he had to say about that.
3: Culture is king. It depends on where you are. If you're a member of the Ware in South America or with the four in New Guinea, then you're raised to think that when your loved ones die that you consume them. And this has led to some serious health problems. But when the anthropologists first got into South America and they met up with the ware and they went, wait, what? You eat your dead? And the ware basically, you know, of course, this is not quotes, but the ware were like, what do you do with your dead? And the anthropologists like, well, we bury them. And they're like, what are you out of your mind? How could you put your loved ones in the ground with the worms? Why wouldn't you incorporate them into yourself? So it depends on where you are. And, and that's the major difference between animals and humans is that we get to choose what is right and what is wrong.
0: So, yeah, I think we just happen to live, all of us, in a society that says that is a terrible thing. And I think it's something that started with the Greeks who made a big point of saying, no, cannibalism is terrible. We do not do this. And that way of thinking has made it through to where we are now, sort of frowning up on people and cultures that may have at some point or still do consume people.
2: Well, I'm glad he brought this up, because when I knew this was the topic, all I really know about cannibalism, I could list on four fingers, right? Like, I know the Donner party. I know that, that Andy's uh, plane crash situation. And then in anthropology, I learned all about, yeah, the people in Papua New Guinea. I learned it through the same lens he just depicted, which is like, oh, that makes sense. You want to, like, infuse your ancestors into you. I can look at it that way, just and really quick, this is neither here nor there, but it does remind me of an anthropology teacher I had who was in, uh, I want to say, sub-Saharan Africa doing field work, and and one of the women who she had become friends with, she said to the anthropologist, wow, now that I've met you, I really like you, and you seem so nice. I'm having a hard time understanding how your people can abuse children the way you do. And she said, what do you mean? You you think we abuse our children? She said, yes, isn't it true that in America you make the baby sleep by itself in a room away from the parents. Like to her, that was like, you might as well be hitting them with a switch. And I was like, yeah, I get that. I get how you could look at us doing that and think that's, that's morbid. What do you mean? You take this little baby that's designed to be with the mom at all the time, put it in a separate room and let it cry. You know, I just think it's relevant to, to know that, yeah, these things are really. It's
1: all relative
0: very relative. Yeah, totally. I mean, it's such a cultural thing. And I think it's so easy to forget that, especially, you know, you have our own habits of eating animal meat and how horrified we are about the idea of eating certain animals. But then we look at the animals that we're potentially eating and they're just as social and as um, aware as what we are consuming, you know, or not. it's, It's all the same thing.
1: I brought this up the other day that whatever culture you're in, I think you have a hypocrisy. We were talking about female circumcision. And in the West, you know, we look at that as horrendous. And I do, too. I think it's horrible. Mm -hmm. And yet we circumcise our male babies like it's nothing. And Dax has said, like, there's different intentions. But ultimately, it's the same thing happening to these kids and it just goes to show that your culture can be really blinding
2: yeah the famous one is like yeah eating dogs elsewhere people eat dogs elsewhere and that is a very sensitive topic here in the states but a pig is just as smart as a dog and some places think of pigs as dogs and in india they would never eat a cow i mean you you have to at least acknowledge that a hundred percent no one really
0: has the moral high ground No, absolutely not. And that's the thing. Pigs are some of the most social animals around. If you've ever kept pigs, if they're together, there's not one moment a pig won't be touching another pig. They actually need to be physically like, just sort of have that little like body on another pig because they're that social. So yeah, the idea of like looking down on someone for eating a dog when we might be eating a pig is just such a clear example of that. But another another thing, Bill raised that I thought was really fascinating, and I hadn't really thought about this is one case where human cannibalism we don't even sort of blink an eye is the idea of eating your placenta, for instance, Mm. which is something that some people do because of the nutritional supposed nutritional value of that. So Bill actually went to Texas and met up with a woman whose husband and them run this business where they basically will cook a placenta in a way that is the most palatable way, or they might put it in a pill, or they might do something else with the placenta. But this, <laughs> this lady in Texas was talking to Bill while he was researching his book, and she was like, hey, like, we've got some of my daughter's placenta in the freezer. You know, you're writing a book about cannibalism. Come and experience what Have we do. Some? So
1: <laughs> She offered her daughter's placenta for lunch?
0: Yeah, well, dinner. Supper. It's not a good midday meal. So no, this is Bill talking about the experience of going and having someone else's placenta cooked for him.
3: It was completely unexpected. The whole thing was surreal. I write fiction as well. And if I had sat there and wrote this thing, I don't think I could have done a better job of putting together a bunch of really interesting characters. I mean, these people were real sweethearts. I grew up, I was a JFK assassination buff and I'd never been to Dallas before. So I went down to Dealey Plaza and and then there was a massive windstorm that had come in. It was just no power anywhere. And then to go into this place and then, you know, here's this guy in the chef's hat and apron talking about running to go out to Walmart to pick up onions and baby wipes to put down so that, you know, his wife could carve up this placenta and he cooked it. He's like, you know, how do you want it? We could make it in a taco or I could have it asabuco. I'm like, asabuco style is great. So I go into this liquor store in Plano, Texas, and try to find the most Texas-looking person I could find and told them I had a unique pairing for the evening. And they, re- <laughs> they basically ran away from me. I mean, this is the last vestiges of medicinal cannibalism, which is another topic that was incredibly fascinating. This is about what's left of it. And it's that if you consume the placenta after you give birth, that somehow you will rebalance some of the hormones that are lost when you lose your placenta. And so there is this thought that it cures the baby blues, for example. Now, the person that I work with basically came out and admitted that this was the placebo effect, which is very powerful.
0: So, I mean, that's kind of the last socially acceptable thing in the West that we can do to sort of experience cannibalism, really, is eating a placenta. I mean, what do you make of that? Well, it was very
2: popular here in Los Angeles. And the argument I had heard, which carries some merit to me, was every single animal eats its placenta. We're the only animal, well, according to the people who told me this, that the mom doesn't eat the placenta afterwards. So I was like, oh. Well, that is curious if every single animal does this, but we don't. I can see some why that got
0: everyone's excitement going.
1: Did he eat that woman's placenta?
0: That woman's daughter's placenta, I understand, which was he had permission. And he was writing a book, so it's not like this woman is just randomly feeding her (laughs) daughter's placenta to different men that turn up at the house. It was like he wanted to she wanted to demonstrate, you know, how she would work with placentas.
1: I feel like that would not have the same effect if he ate it. Because, yeah, isn't the point to replen your body? Like, if you just took someone else's placenta, I feel like that would make you ill.
0: I mean, what Bill, the biologist, said was that it's all placebo. Like, it, there's zero science that it does anything to help you besides making you, like, feel better. So I think right. whether you're eating someone else's or your <laughs> own, I think it's all the same. It's all kind of useless. I mean, I can't really put myself in a woman's shoes at all but I, I think the idea of eating my own placenta would be much more palatable than to eating yes. someone else's. Yes. Interesting. What about we wouldn't consider breast milk at all some extension of that, no? No. Mm. Yeah, that sort of feels like it differs because it's something that's created via evolution specifically for that thing to feed a child. Yeah. You know, it's got no other use. But I think
2: most husbands have had a drink off that. Mm Because mm, mm. why not? Yeah,
0: no, I, yeah, I never <laughs> But I guess that's I different. But I, yeah. <laughs> Yet. Maybe it's something I can look forward to one day. Yet. I'm thinking of Bill listening to this and he'd probably be horrified that I've picked the most titillating bits uh. of our conversation to talk about. He was sort of horrified when I raised the idea of interviewing a real cannibal. He's like, that is mm. kind of like trash fire territory and I absolutely understand what he's saying. But for Bill's sanity, I, I want to hear him talking about cannibalism in the animal kingdom because that's what he's primarily interested in you know because pretty much every animal partakes in cannibalism and these were three examples of cannibalism that he like really like really blew his mind when he was writing this book and keep in mind he's an expert on this stuff so these stories even surprised
3: him Mm. i guess the thing that was the most surprising was how widespread it was When you think about animal cannibalism, even if you're not a scientist, you think about praying mantises or black widow spiders. And it was just so far beyond that in just about every group of animals that you could think of. So, for example, once you get into fish, all fish eat other eggs or they eat young of their own. And that's a type of indiscriminate cannibalism. If you lay 5,000 eggs, or even more, and you've got these little fish swimming around, you're not looking at them going, oh, there's Jerry, and oh, no, it's Sally. You know, you're eating them, they're like raisins. It's a really easy way to get a meal. If you're a lion, you take over a pride, and, and there's a female with a cub, you eat that cub so that you get to mate with her and pass your genes on. You know, and it goes on and on. Sand tiger sharks, they have in utero cannibalism. So they have eggs that are laid internally, And they develop at different times. So there are two oviducts that a set of eggs develop in. And so on each side of the oviduct, one shark is going to hatch first. And what it does is it starts to eat the other eggs. And when they hatch, it eats the other sharks. And so at the end, sharks are born. They already know how to hunt. And so you have this sibling cannibalism. That to me was... That was wild, especially since the sharks live off the coast of New York, where I live.
0: If sharks couldn't <laughs> be more terrifying, right? I knew it's that
2: terrifying. thing about the the male lions. I've sadly witnessed that in nature shows: Yeah, and the explanation was that they won't go into uh, estrus while they have young, so they gotta speed that up. I think gorillas too will
0: will do that. Oof. Oof. I do just love that idea of sharks already being horrific killers from inside the womb like that sort of blows my mind yeah. yeah born to be bad I mean literally born to be bad
2: there's another thing I was told in an anthropology class which has always clouded my opinion of cannibalism they were talking about bushmeat and how bush meat is a regular trade in parts of Africa and this what's that mean Bushmeat is generally like they're poaching, so they're killing primates in the forest or in the jungle, and then they're selling it in the markets. And there's some originally belief that perhaps that's how we got AIDS, which is SIV, which certain primates had, uh, became HIV when we ate it. Mm. I don't know that that's turned out to be the case, but that was one of the theories was the bushmeat theory, that it had jumped through that process. But at any rate, this primatologist was telling me that in general, primates are terrible to eat. They taste like rubber bands, apparently, because we're so tendony as opposed to other animals that just have these four legs and then all the meats on top of it moving the legs. We are all primates are so tendony because we're we're designed to brachiate and swing through the force. And I've just always imagined,
0: I guess ever since then, I've thought we, we taste like rubber bands, which I would never want to eat. No, and it reminds me that that story I was talking about earlier about that German cannibal who found a willing participant. Part of what made that story so fascinating is they'd planned this out online. like They'd planned to like, okay, you're going to come around to my house. You're going to take a bunch of sleeping pills and get kind of out of it. And we're going to cook your penis. And that's what they did. Like they began by cutting off his penis and frying it up. And I think probably thanks to shows like Hannibal and pop culture, you kind of think that, oh, it's going to be this like, tender delicious bit of rib or this like wonderful penis that's going to be like Uh, mushy uh, in my mouth or something sure (laughs) you talk to the surviving member of that pair and it was all a disaster like it all Uh like the penis was like tough and disgusting like the other bits of meat were awful Uh and like humans (laughs) just like aren't the dream they imagined you know this fantasy he'd had for 40 years to eat someone it was a fucking disaster the whole thing So I always found that kind of amusing.
1: That is so interesting. The difference between someone who's interested in trying it because there's like an allure to its... um,
2: Forbiddenness. Yeah,
1: exactly, to being so forbidden versus a cannibal who keeps going back, who keeps doing this because they can't like the taste, right? So what is the draw to continue to do that?
0: We will get to that. And another thing that Bill, the biologist, actually talked to me about was this idea. There's always that role play that people have of, you know, if you're in an accident and you're all, you know, starving on a cliff top, would you eat the other person? And he said that's just a stupid conversation to have because no one knows until you're in that starvation situation what you're going to do. Like, it's just impossible. And he said it's just so incredible when the body starts to eat itself. It's so incredible, like what you will be pushed to do. And I think that's an entirely different scenario of cannibalism as well in a survival situation to what it would be in a I want to eat this person because it's like edgy and forbidden and I want to do that awful thing. And I want to be a naughty boy. Yeah, exactly. Which I think, look, I think probably Nico, the man I spoke to, I think that's what it was for him. But the first thing we talked about were kind of the origins of where, because I wanted to know like, where these feelings come from because i've got no like for the record i've got no urge or want to eat anyone but i want to know like where his came from and this is what he said to that
4: i had always been uh, fascinated by graveyards and horror movies vampire tales and uh, when i was uh, 12 i was at my uh, uncle's place and uh, i saw a magazine it was a french photo magazine I would uh, look through the pages. In that magazine, there was a uh, an insert, six pages, showing a man called Issei Sagawa. Uh, he was a student at the Sorbonne University in Paris, and he had uh, killed and dissected and uh, eaten a Dutch student in Paris. So uh, a morgue employee had uh, taken photographs of the victim and. Uh, As a young kid, I uh, was very, very fascinated by that magazine. A couple of years before that, uh, my grandfather had died uh, under very uh, difficult circumstances. After we played a a badminton game, he just fell down and he had a stroke. And uh, one side of the family accused me, more or less, of uh, being the culprit. So we went to The Wake. And it was the first time that I actually saw a dead person in a casket. And that was the first time that I was actually in a place where I was confronted to physical death. So there was a a weird cocktail that took place there. Maybe it was uh, the genesis of it all. Hmm.
0: So that's where things started ticking over in his mind. I mean, in saying that, I've seen relatives that have passed away when I was younger and I, it didn't kick off what he ended up doing. So I don't know.
1: I wonder if the, the trauma, the psychological mix of being blamed, it sounds like there was some psychological element that happened during that that maybe led to this.
0: I think it hit him pretty hard, whatever happened. I mean, being blamed by your family for your grandfather's death is pretty heavy. But, you know, he also got into all this sort of stereotypical kind of like Satanist stuff that, you know, like heavy metal and all that stuff like that in the 70s and 80s was meant to be like incredibly evil. So he started like sort of pushing himself into that kind of mold a little bit of being like edgy.
2: Yeah. And we're relying on his retelling of it. So, you know, I guess you're wondering, was he really blamed for this? passing of his grandfather i'm just a little curious about that or if in his mind he had been blamed for it also is he saying that at that moment of looking at the uh, corpse in the coffin that he he wanted to eat some
0: then or just it started him on a path of macabre obsession i think the letter i just think like okay that magazine seeing the images in the magazine then saying the actual body in front of him kind of sent him on the next part of his journey that we talked about, which was starting to work as a morgue attendant. Oh, Uh -oh. boy! This is his take on that. Oh, my
4: goodness. I was 19 years old at the time. First, I wanted to be an embalmer because I thought that the art of embalming was fascinating. I had seen several videos, I had read a few books, and then I um, found out that uh, I had to study math, chemistry, and I was not good at them. There's no specific school in France for being a morgue attendant. You actually learn everything by working there. So I just sent a lot of resumes. And then uh, after a month, I got a, a reply and I started to work in a morgue. My first days in the morgue were quite chaotic. I had a lot of things to learn, and uh, they kind of want to make sure that you're, you're right for that kind of job, so they they make you watch a lot of autopsies. They try to push you to the limits. First I was just a spectator, then I, I learned how to cut the cadavers open and how to stitch them. And I also learned a uh, lot of things about psychology of grief, because you have to deal with the families of the deceased. but. I really liked it. I really liked the atmosphere. I really liked the fact that I was discovering a very, very unique job. And I also, of course, like the fact that I was working with actual dead people and uh, participating to autopsies. It was a lifelong dream come true for me.
1: This is so fascinating. Because, I mean, God, just everyone's so normal sounding. Yeah. Always, yeah. always. And, oh, man.
2: Yeah, you want them to be like, and then I applied for a morgue <laughs> position, and I learned my trade, stitching and eating. No, oh, no, I wasn't eating any <laughs> <laughs> of it. They never cast these things correctly. Now, now what are, you, doing? Like, what are you guys
0: doing when you're listening to them? Because I'm doing a very specific thing. I'm imagining it in my mind. What are you doing, Monica.
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I'm imagining it, but but like I said, I, I mainly feel like, oh, God, this is just like a normal person. And then I get triggered a little bit fear-wise mm. where I'm like, oh, my God, like if, if just one thing were different, that could be me. Mm. Mm. I mean, right? Like we could be yeah. anyone.
0: <laughs> yeah, and I mean, when I was interviewing him, I mean, it was a moment for me because the background of my Zoom at the time was like, I was looking at what was behind him and what was behind me, and it was the same sort of nerdy shit. Like, I had like some (laughs) comics behind me Uh and like some little like figurines, and I was like, oh my God, like (laughs) this is the French version of me, just this like nerdy man who's like collects comics. And I'm like, oh my God. So, that was a very visceral reaction that I had at the time. Yeah. Stay tuned for more if you dare.
2: We are supported by Imperfect Foods. Now, imperfections. Monica, you don't have any, but I have a ton. Oh, wow.
1: I have so many.
2: So why do we hold our groceries to a different standard? Get your groceries from Imperfect Foods to help create a kinder, less wasteful food system that embraces food of every shape, size, and physical appearance. Now, every year, billions of pounds of food go to waste, often because it doesn't live up to the strict cosmetic standards of grocery stores. Don't you wish there was a way to prevent all that waste? Well, Imperfect Foods is on a mission to reimagine grocery delivery for a kinder, less wasteful world. They deliver sustainable, affordable groceries, including produce, quality protein, eggs, and dairy, and pantry staples straight to your door. All you have to do is sign up, create your flexible, personalized grocery plan, and then shop online each week and get affordable and sustainable groceries to deliver directly to your door. Sign up with Imperfect Foods today to save time, save money, save food from going to waste. And right now, Imperfect Foods is offering Armcherries 20% off plus free shipping on your first order when you go to imperfectfoods.com and make sure to use promo code DAX. Try Imperfect Foods now and for a limited time, get 20% off plus free shipping on your first order. Go to imperfectfoods.com. And use DAX to sign up. That's 20% off plus free shipping at imperfectfoods.com. Offer code DAX. We are supported by MeUndiDiUndiDi MeUndiDiDiMeUndiDi MeUndiDiS MeUndiS believes that comfort is about more than what's touching your skin. It's about feeling comfortable in your skin. That's why MeUndiS sources the softest, most comfortable fabrics imaginable. Three times softer than cotton, Monica. Mm, I love them. Micromodal. Express yourself every day in new limited edition prints. Because what you wear on the outside should empower you from the inside. Now, I was most thrilled most recently with my shamrock panties for St. Patty's Day.
1: Yes, I got those too. They're so cute.
2: Oh my God. I
1: love it when it's on a theme.
2: Festive. Now, you know when you rush home to change into something more comfortable? That's me undies. It's like they pull the clouds from the sky and spin it into undies, socks, bralettes, and loungewear. You can choose from endless styles and sizes extra small to 4XL. Their sustainably soft micromodal and new ultralight breathe fabrics are so comfy and well-breathable, you can move free. MeUndies has a great offer for arm cherries. For any first-time purchasers, you get 15% off and free shipping. MeUndies also has their problem-free philosophy. If you're not satisfied with any product for any reason, they'll refund or exchange it. No caveats, no questions. To get your 15% off your first order and free shipping, go to MeUndies.com slash Dax. That's MeUndies.com slash Dax. The whole time I'm listening, I'm, I guess, playing armchair psychologist. I'm trying to figure out why this confirms either his identity or does he feel like he doesn't like people and the only people he wants to be around are dead. I'm just like ratcheting mm. through any explanation for why this would be a pleasurable activity for him. And I'm not there yet, but I, I that's all I'm doing. I'm trying to like, yeah. I want to start from a place of like, well, this person was probably born normal and what the fuck happened and why yeah. Is this what he's proving to the world? Like, did he? Lo- I mm. bet this motherfucker told everyone he worked with dead bodies, and I bet he told everyone he he handled the organs. Like, I bet he bragged about it. I, it's got to be part of his identity, I'd imagine.
1: I feel like some of it might be control. Like, I feel like that's what we're all trying to get. And maybe he felt really out of control in his life. He was blamed for something he didn't do. And when you're working with dead people, you have all the leverage. I mean, it's all you. So maybe you feel really in control in that space.
0: And it reminds me, I was in Milwaukee filming a segment for Dark Tourist about Jeffrey Dahmer. And we met with one of his trial attorneys, you know, who spent a lot of time with Dahmer. And it was it was like a control thing. And, you know, Dahmer's yeah. thing was that he would drill into people's skulls while they're still alive and like pour some hot water in. Oh and God. would kind of like mush the brain up and sort of turn them into zombies. To the point where, at one point, one of this is a story that will always stick with me. You know, Dharma had like ducked out for some bread and some milk or something from the shop, and one of his victims had kind of like in a zombie state. He'd been drilled (gasps) bare naked too, naked, naked, wandered onto the street, (gasps) found a police officer. No, Dharma coming back from the shops, he had his groceries. He sort of saw his victim had wandered out and was talking to the police, which would be quite a stressful situation for Dharma to be in, I imagine. Um, And Dharma just walked up to this guy and he was just like, oh yeah, like we're, you know, we're lovers. We've had a tiff. He's, he's a bit drunk and just led him away from the cops back to the apartment. And part of it, part of the problem, the other sort of awful thing about the whole Dharma situation was that there was a lot of homophobia around and that cop Mm. would have just seen a gay quarrel in front of him and just been like, get away from me. This is awful. Mm -hmm. And that man died. So sorry, but rewinding Totally, Monica, like a control thing, I think, like just wanting a body that isn't doing anything that you have full control over. Isn't Dahmer's
2: origin story that he was raised by his grandmother and he was led to believe his mother was his sister and then he found out about it. I mean, isn't that part of it? Yep
0: part of it and yeah he had a, his upbringing was just incredibly rough he started drinking at school really early and he got very obsessed with killing and looking and dissecting animals and that kind of thing first mm. so i think it does have a lot to do obviously with upbringing i mean the the other thing with nico that was always running through my my mind is how much of a reliable n- narrator he is because obviously he's talking to us about this mm.
4: yeah. he's putting mm-hmm. himself
0: out there and part of that will be for attention i have no doubt i mean He's very open about this. The thing that I'm not getting into with him is he has murdered someone. Like he's not a good human back then and all people can change and he says he has changed. But
2: yeah, yeah. if you're looking for a babysitter in Paris,
0: even if you can get over the cannibalism, probably not.
1: Not your best option.
0: It's a lot and I, and you know all this sort of came out post trial for the murder, you know, and he he told me that he, he had at one point 7 psychologists kind of working with him to try and figure out what was going on in his brain and sort of none of them could crack exactly what was going on he said he was never diagnosed as a psychopath wow he doesn't think he is he just thinks this was like a very driven thing that he wanted to do at the time
2: do we know any details about the murder was it like premeditated was it a thing of passion
0: yeah it was premeditated while he was going through this incredibly sort of dark phase he knew he wanted to kill somebody and that's what he did so it was a premeditated mm. I think he found them on a some sort of dating situation arranged to go and meet them and so it's awful we're not talking to someone who's like whimsically just sort of going about yeah his time in the morgue like make no comms mm. about it like yeah not yeah. a good time in this person's life and he has killed someone mm-hmm. Oof. but it is that thing it's funny like whenever you talk to someone who has even done this extreme stuff like that's the thing he's still likable and he's another human yes. and you can kind of like you sort of empathize in a way with not empathize but you understand the situation he's currently in and you kind of go along with it right Is yeah. he in prison right now No no he's out he served his time and okay. um he's out and he's um rehabilitated and he he takes all his sort of dark darkness out into his art now and that's his way of expressing himself What medium does he use Does a lot of painting you know some of it's pretty good but, the, obviously, he's, a, he's in the morgue now, and sort of we all know where this is going. That's the next part of his story that he told me.
4: The first time I was left alone uh, in the morgue was during the weekends. We had no autopsies, so sometimes I would uh, you know, stay with the, the dead person, uh, study the marbling on the skin, because I was fascinated by the, the colours that the, the skin would take. There's a lot of different palettes of colors that the dead skin is taking. You know, I was in a really, really, really dark place back in those days. There was a lot of murder fantasies in me. I was constantly feeding myself with horror movies, death metal. Years before that, I had opened a few graves. I had gotten inside creeps, so I I did not have this barrier in me, this moral barrier in me stopping me from doing those things. So for me, it was a kind of magical thing to do. When I had the occasion, this is when I actually could take uh, small strips that I cut from the, the abdomen before stitching the incision. The first tries I did was to actually swallow the the flesh raw. It was an impulse, yeah. So over time when I I realized that uh, I could actually bring little bits of flesh home, I cooked them several ways. It was not something that I would do on a regular basis because I would actually be left alone with the corpse only one time out of three. So yeah, it was sporadically. What
0: would you cook with it? Like, what would you eat it with?
4: I've tried several things. Uh, condiments, spices, which I didn't like because I prefer the, the actual taste of the meat itself. I really like the, the act of chewing the meat. And I liked it when it was still rare, when there was still a bit of, of blood inside. The more I cooked it and the longer I cooked it, the less I liked it. What was the taste like? If you ever had steak tartar, Horse meat, that's the closest I, I would compare it to. You know, it's also a matter of taste. I would never try offals or organs or liver, or I could have because we had access to, to those organs, but I always pick the meat from ribs, from the abdominal cavity. But I've read quite a lot on the subject, and I've read that people during the great discoveries, Columbus, etc., Sailors who had traveled the world and met several cannibal tribes, that they would say that, for example, in the uh, Pacific Islands, the flesh of the natives would taste much sweeter. And Europeans were the worst in terms of uh, how they tasted.
0: Not surprised.
2: Wow.
0: Yeah, it's a lot. I think it's hearing him talk so casually about it is interesting to me.
1: Wow, and and kind of the fact that there's a little bit of snobbery. Like, I wouldn't have an organ, but the meat, oh, man. Mm. Are you getting hungry?
2: Yeah, I'm starving. <laughs> I want to eat some of your abdominal meat.
1: <laughs>
2: I was going to bring this up earlier when you said the idea of a penis, maybe it's like on the surface, you're like, yeah, that could be good. It's like a hot dog, I guess. <laughs> and naturally, I think like breasts c- couldn't be that bad because they're soft. And I think it kind of lines up
0: with something, you know? So, yeah, I think with Nico, we did talk a, a little bit about this. Like, for him, it was a bit of a sexual thing. Like, mm. he, after his grandfather died and there was that whole funeral thing, puberty hit. And he like, it sounded like sexually and with those darker desires, it did kind of line up. Mm. Wow. To be honest, I didn't really want to go too far down that particular <laughs> rabbit hole because it was like a beautiful day outside and i was just a bit <laughs> yeah a bit much you had your neighbor's cat on your lap but
2: also <laughs> on the ladder of insanity i hate to say this but him having had sex with one of the corpse is lower than him taking pieces home and eating the corpse weirdly enough
1: wait you think which one's more insane eating
2: eating yeah yeah yeah, yeah. like so the fact that he 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 went to defcon Con. One makes me I'm not I wouldn't be surprised if he's had intercourse with some of these corpses.
0: Yeah, and we, your mind does jump there. Again, I d- benefit of the doubt, I didn't talk to him about that, but he was he was opening, gra- I mean, just so casually said, I, was, I got into opening graves for a while. Yeah. I mean, he dropped that like it was just it's the nothing. most normal thing in the world. Oh my god. But here's where I think
2: this is kind of what I was saying earlier, is that like, no one's excluded from their sense of identity, so I bet like, he'd be embarrassed to say he had sex with the corpses, but he digs that he's eaten them. Like, he thinks it's renegade of him to have eaten a human and liberated himself from the confines of society but i bet if he had sex with a corpse he wouldn't say that because that
0: doesn't like that wouldn't be cool that would just be perverted yeah it's an it is definitely an image thing and just him talking about being into heavy metal and satan it's like we all like know there's kids at school and like mm, mm-hmm. it, it's like that's fine but it's like rebelling and i guess like eating like, you know, cannibalism, it is like surely the ultimate form of rebelling. And I think probably because of pop culture and I think, you know, probably without ideas and and shows like Hannibal kind of making it edgy and interesting, like yeah, a lot of this sort of these people probably wouldn't operate in this way because it's been made dangerous and made kind of sexy by yeah. pop culture. So I, I'm not blaming pop culture on it, but I definitely think it doesn't operate. You know, they're not operating <sighs> in a vacuum. This is one of the
2: facts that I hate because I'm so pro-art and pro-media and pro-everything, but I remember in an anthro class learning about how contagious suicides are. Mm. And there was an island in the uh, South Pacific, I can't remember which one, but they just had this epidemic of suicides. And it was always, they came in spells. When they made the newspaper, then there'd be three more than they'd make the newspaper. And people did emulate that. Those people got Mm -hmm. attention and blah, blah, blah. So i'm also wrestling with that the truth that people do emulate these things or like we didn't have a shooting for i don't know what felt like a while for here and then there's three in a row like and i i think they're instigated by each other
0: no absolutely and when it's you know when anything is kind of like normalized or seen in society to be like something that's happened it it does it it certainly can trigger certain behaviors in people like we're we're a social people like we're looking at what other people are doing and there's mm. yeah there's definitely triggers within that mm. um but you know i've been watching a lot of hannibal i've just watched three scenes of hannibal and at no point have i sort of <laughs> thought i would like to try this it's purely like a vicarious kind of an exercise
2: well how about did you though desire something exotic like oh maybe
0: i will try rattlesnake i'm serious no, Did I you thought like- maybe like i wanted to like travel to like some fancy chapels and stuff that he was in there was some like cool like geography in there and some cool places (laughs) he went some cool buildings sure but yeah i didn't i didn't sort of it wasn't even making me more hungry you know it was just sort of like a fascinating world to be in but the other thing like nico nico is definitely an attention seeker like another thing he does on the side is he's got a line of sex toys that are based around serial killers so oh
1: jesus
0: oh he's, my god it, it's pretty bleak. so he's got a thing the bun dildo which is a dildo shaped like a big bone a boner it's a bone you know that's the gang and oh he sells serial killer-esque sex toys so he is like
1: provocative
0: yeah like he's he's out there doing this like he it's not like it took a while for me to find him, to talk to him, but it wasn't like the most difficult mission in the world to like mm-hmm. get this guy to talk to me. He's very open about things.
2: And, and I want to be dead clear in case, uh, lest anyone think I'm being uh, hypocritical right now, like I desire tons of attention. All, all three of us yep. present are in deep desire mm. of lots of attention. <laughs> I, I'm not critical that he wants attention. I'm critical, but the means by which he's he's getting attention, I'm critical. So I just don't want anyone to think I'm not in on the fact that I I'm not dissimilar to him I've just chosen a different route to getting the attention I would yeah I'd argue like a very different route Mm -hmm. Um, (laughs) (laughs) you could argue opposite routes
1: oh my goodness trying to make
2: people laugh and have a nice day not eat anyone
1: (laughs) third on the list
2: (laughs) really quick is this something that's in the past for him or does he still uh try to get legally
0: sourced ethically sourced he's done now Mm. He pours all his time into his artwork. He gives guided tours of the catacombs. So you can take one of those. Probably. Wow, this when is fascinating. COVID clears this up.
1: person can be around other people.
2: <laughs> you may bump into him on your next trip to France.
0: But that's the thing, like, Monica, like would you if you were in France and you're like, oh, that's that guest that we had on our show and he got <laughs> a tour. <laughs> and it's like there's no other guest book this day. It's you mm. and him.
1: Never, mm. never. Oh my God. There's a part of me that's like, oh my God, I can't I'm scared for David.
0: <laughs> oh, yeah. This is very on brand for you. Yeah. <laughs> I, what if Dex da- was there? Like, what if it was you had like a friend there, Monica? No, How I would don't want
1: then? him ever seeing me. Like, I don't want him to even think, like, what if he what if he starts feeling like ooh I want to eat her and then even if he can't eat me like what if he eats someone else who reminds some him of me some other poor yes, Indian like, girl I,
2: on a school trip to France <laughs> <laughs> I just I just
1: rather not make contact
2: wow
0: yeah I want yeah, yeah I will not I won't CC you and to give her into an email wait I'll you were keep just keep you. gonna say can I be honest well, that's yeah. always a good
1: well can I be honest I I really and this maybe is maybe is unfair though I think it's pretty safe to say I don't really want to make contact with anyone who has murdered another human. I'd rather not. I mean, I'm fi- I love hearing human stories and I, I like hearing the psychology behind a lot of stuff, but just for my personal self-protection, I know that I would never want to come in contact.
2: And this is, man, we're all so funny. So, of course, I'm dying to be around the guy. And for my own narrative and story about myself, it's like, I hope he tries to eat me. So, oh so, my I, God. so I can like be the guy that he couldn't victimize and I'll teach him a lesson. I got, you know, I got a whole thing whipped up in my head of why I would want to meet him. This is how cuckoo our identities are. Or mine.
0: I'll own mine.
1: You, you want to meet him because you want to be the revealer of this human story
0: yeah i would i would like to meet him i mean i originally came across him when we were doing some research for if we're going to do some more dark tourists or not because i was like we found this guy that gives like oh yeah it you know, was going to be the big twist it's like he gives guided um, tours of the catacombs <laughs> that would be an amazing part of the story halfway through you learn he's a cannibal oh, and like that was going to be the storyline so i do like meeting because i'm just kind of i find my own personality so boring i love meeting people who have just done the most outrageous things and so i would like to meet them. and it sort of just it endlessly fascinates me what humans can get up to and what we spend our time doing i never want to do what they're doing but i just like spending time with them stay tuned for more if you dare
2: we are supported by mcdonald's Now, this specific episode of Armchair Expert is brought to you by McDonald's world-famous fries.
1: There's just nothing like them on earth.
2: There isn't. They're delicious. They're golden. They're crisp. They're little sensations, miracles. They are so satisfying. It's incredible. I get them in the drive-thru, and then I smell the smell, Mm. and I'm pounding them. In fact, this is a hack. I get two orders, one for the ride home, and then when I get there to eat my meal. Smart. Okay. Now, when I'm looking for a nice, lovely treat or fun little reward after a long day or week or month of work, it's time for some McDonald's fries.
1: I always look at the container once I'm done and I make sure that I've eaten every single fry. You know how sometimes there's like a quarter of a fry? I need that in my mouth. Then (laughs) I search through the bag.
2: Oh, the bottom of the bag. Yeah, because some have probably
1: fallen out and I need every single fry.
2: Well, if you're with me, you'll never get to that bottom of the bag because I'll be all over it from the jump. Now listen, if it's extra fries you're after, you can get medium fries for free on Free Fries Fridays at McDonald's when you spend a minimum of $1 on the McDonald's app. McDonald's, makers of the world's most craveable fries. Free Fries Friday offer valid through June 27th, 2021 at participating U.S. McDonald's. Valid one per day, excludes tax, McD app download and registration required. We are supported by... Embark. I love Embark because I've been in a little bit of a debate with a family member about whether or not their dog is a corgi. Oh. And so I have just purchased for this person an Embark kit. Embark's breed and health kit is the best way to help know your pup. It was developed by PhDs and veterinarians and it provides the most accurate breed identification and genetic health results and can identify over 350 breeds, types, and varieties and screen for over 200 genetic health conditions to help your vet provide the the best medical care for your dog.
1: We like this because we are very pro-rescue. And often when you rescue, you don't know exactly no. what kind of dog they are. So this is really helpful.
2: You can also learn your dog's breed mix because that gives you some insight into their behavior and to train them for a better quality of life. So whether your dog is a mixed breed or a purebred, they're not immune to certain genetic health issues. So the sooner you know, the sooner you can help find and reduce their pain. Learn your dog's inner secrets with Embark, the highest rated dog DNA test. Right now, Embark has an offer on their breed and health kit for arm cherries. Go to Embark Vet. Dot .com Now to get free shipping and save $50 off your Embark breed and health kit with promo code DAX visit embark that's E M B A R K vet.com and use promo code DAX to save $50 today. I think I've said this to you before, so forgive me if I have. But and Monica I hate this because I basically read one article. And I think it was in Vanity Fair. It was about the German national character. And I found it to be the most fascinating article ever. And let's just assume the article was correct for one second. One of the things was their obsession with shit. They've got like so many words for shit. And there's so many great sayings they have that revolve around shit. I found that really mm-hmm. interesting. And then um, the other thing was the, they were saying what was really curious about the subprime mortgage crash was that so much of those bundled mortgages were owned by German banks, which is really weird because they're like the most fiscally responsible nation out there. And so the question was like, why why them of all people? And their opinion or takeaway from the German national character is that they're kind of attracted to the chaos because they're very... Buttoned up in engineering, and their cities are perfectly clean, and like they're really in control, and that they're somehow drawn to the chaos that exists like in this mm. crazy country, and they kind of want to be involved in this silly subprime mortgage issue. And so, I'm wondering for you, of like being a polite, kind Kiwi,
0: if you're like, Oh, I, I gotta go, I wanna go witness this naughtiness. Absolutely, and I, I've had the most quiet, unexciting life.
2: Well, you're born on Christmas in Bethlehem. I mean, your story was written for you.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I was born on Christmas in Bethlehem and like at the bottom of the world. But I felt like this spending time with Popeye, like Pablo Escobar's hitman, you know, Popeye had killed over 300 people. He was like very open about it. But just spending time with someone like that, it's like, it feels like it's not even real. And what I find so disturbing and interesting about it is I'm getting on as well with him as I am with like a lot of people I've gotten on with that week because he's charismatic and just as a human we're getting on and it doesn't matter what someone's done, you can still have that connection. And that's just a very – that doesn't get severed. That doesn't go away. And I'd argue like, Monica, if you met Popeye, you would probably have a laugh with him. But it's just such an odd thing to me.
1: I think I'm just more on – guard for betrayal so i would definitely be like oh he's charming but i would know this person is trained in that he's trained in manipulating people into being close to him so that he can then take advantage of them or worst case kill them so i'm just going in knowing that
2: okay so i know enough about monica to say this and i know enough about myself to say this so yeah, Monica, you were on high alert growing up for betrayal. Yeah. I feel like I fit in, but do I fit in? Are they talking about me behind my back? Am I? Do I really not fit in, right? So that's like a big part of your foundation. Sure. And then mine is, you know, I was a victim of a bunch of stepdads and a predator and all this stuff. So my, my story is like, I'm going to conquer every predator or every person that wants to harm other people. So I'm wondering, and I don't know enough about you, David. Did you live with a secret, and did you feel like you were presenting something to the world that you are now fascinated with? Other people that have a facet to themselves that is societally looked down upon, but then are carrying on this facade of fitting in and blending in.
3: No,
0: I, I think that's really fair. I mean, I think my story is probably fairly common and and not particularly rare. But I mean, I grew up in a really I loved my home, but it was like fairly conservative and I was sheltered from a lot of different types of people. My fairly Baptist upbringing sort of taught me that, you know, gay people are bad and and, and, and sinners, just a very like specific view of Christianity. And so, and I believe that for a really long time, probably until I was seven, you know, I was head boy at a Christian school and I'd pray in assembly and that kind of thing, like so, so Christian. Yeah. And so when I went to university and started meeting, I met this Jewish girl and sort of it's it's very late in life like I feel like a bit of an idiot but sort of realize oh holy shit here's someone who's much smarter than me and has a vastly different idea about the world and very quickly everything fell away and so I think the rest of my life I've spent trying to catch up just trying to meet as many people with as many different perspectives Mm. and kind of like gleefully like a pig in shit just going oh I love that I don't have all the answers to everything and we all have vastly different perspectives. And I just love that. Even when I know that morally I disagree with someone, just the fact I get to experience their take on everything, I just find like this massive privilege. So I think that's where it comes from. Just so I, I, I was a bit late in realizing there were different perspectives than mine that were right. <laughs> and yeah. that I'm probably very wrong on most things. But also I would imagine too, because I, I have a ton of this, is like
2: the awareness of my own duality So it's like I was a perfect son for my mom, but I was also a fucking hellion, you know, uh, quietly Mm. and and doing terrible things. But I I had a very good persona for her because I wanted to be perfect for her. So I was just very used to this duality. I could see other people who were living in a duality and attracted to other people's dualities. And and Mm. you're interested and not shocked. And you know what I'm, does that make any sense? Yeah, no, I do, yeah. So yeah, like the Popeye thing, I'm like, That's my assumption that people can be both those things at once, that they can be a horrific monster and then like a charming dude you would want to walk
0: around uh, Medellin with. 100%. And I also think, Monica, like your take is also incredibly important because I think we should be like on our toes as well.
1: Yeah. Because it might not be be a duality so much as they're helping each other right like your charisma can or your, your good things can help your bad things and vice versa so it's not like you have one piece and then this other piece there they're all it's all one thing that's melding together
2: but I guess the experience and you you probably had this too which is like you have a presenting image that you're pulling off uh, that I was pulling off and yet this awareness that I had a much different <laughs> image I also indulged
0: Completely, 100%. Yeah, no, you've got your two selves. The self you present to the world you're in at the time and, yeah, what you've actually got going on inside. Yeah, and I think a lot of people can relate to that. Oh, yeah. Chances are at some point in your life you're going to be made to feel shitty for the way you are or or something you believe and you're going to come out the other side um, realizing that, oh, maybe it's kind of fine that I'm like that. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. Not relating to being a cannibal.
1: Yeah, we're not saying that's fine. Let's be clear.
0: (laughs) The line is.
1: Let's hear from Nico again.
0: Yeah, let's, let's check in with Nico. Yeah, this was Nico and I. That's sort of how we left the conversation, reflecting on things and sort of what he's up to at the moment.
4: I wrote a cannibal cookbook in 2003, one year after getting out of prison. Somebody has a joke to me, yeah, you, you should write a cannibal cookbook. So I said, yeah, why not? And uh, so I actually uh, took this very seriously. And uh, so I looked up confessions made by actual cannibals on how they prepare the meat in different parts of the world by different tribes. The Fiji Islands, for example, or uh, some uh, Native American tribes were famous for cannibalism. And even in in Europe, the Celts were actually practicing cannibalism. And much before that, Homo erectus and Homo neanderthal were famously cannibals. So we all are, have cannibal DNA in, uh, deep inside. So yeah, of course, of course, of course, there's the, the big moral issue. And I'm not going to debate that because it's not my role and I'm not, uh, I'm not the best one to actually talk about the, the moral issue of cannibalism. But uh, yeah, the cannibal cookbook was it was a funny book to write. It also gives actual advice on preparing the meat, etc. But of course, don't try this at all. You know, it's just for fun. I think that The Cannibal represents absolute horror, and horror has always fascinated people. You know, we have a tendency to slow down when there is an accident or on a highway, and true crime shows have never been as popular as uh, in 2020. And people love to be horrified. They don't like to admit it, but horror is an actual form of entertainment. And reading about cannibals, you know that it will never happen to you in your daily life. You know, it's something that happens in countries very, very far. And it's also, a horrifying reminder that we are part of a food chain and that we are meat. We are just bones, sinews, and sometimes cannibal stories, they remind us of that.
2: Wow. I was not expecting that turn. He just dropped some major poetry on us at times.
1: Yeah, and I kind of was like, I like him. There we
2: go. You're having the... the, um, No, I... Who's the other killer all the women loved and they went to his trial? Not Dahlmer, <laughs> but Bundy. You're getting you're succumbing to the Bundy effect. <laughs>
1: well, no, that King was Kong beautiful Bundy. what he said at the end. It was,
2: and they don't want we don't want to be reminded we're meat. True. <laughs> I can introduce you guys. I have an no, email. No,
1: I can no, yeah. No, yeah. No,
2: He's reformed no, no. Monica. I'll get
1: back to you on that. Oh Let me think God. on
2: it. Of all the love connections I I had hoped would happen f- with Monica in this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> this was the last one, I guess.
0: <laughs> Booking tickets to France. <laughs> oh, my God.
1: But I was thinking that but even before he said it. The reference to meat, you know, we, we've said it a billion times on this episode, and he keeps saying it, and and Bill was saying it.
2: Biologist Bill.
1: Yeah, biologist Bill. I think it's really hard for us to think of ourselves as meat. We've separated it. We've separated animal meat, and and then we are flesh. We are flesh, but they are meat. Mm. And it's just not true. We're all meat. And I was thinking, like, am I gonna be able to eat meat for a little bit after this? I kind mm. of think I might need to take a little break.
0: Oh wow. No, it's a lot. And we forget very quickly, like we think we're above the animals somehow, you know, that yeah. we're we're this wonderful being. But no, we're just like meat and bone, like wandering around on like legs, like we're big yeah. like a big flesh suit. Like that's all we are. We're mm. kind of like a kebab. Oh
2: gee, <laughs> <laughs> Right? Yeah, no, it's a long skinny true. tall
0: upright.
2: <laughs> uh, okay, so this hasn't made me want to eat a human, but the part okay. I can relate to, and this is so embarrassing, but I'll just admit it, a part of my stupid identity is that I'm an iconoclast. I don't succumb to societal norms. I'm not afraid if there's not a moral dilemma to let something stand in the way. I would wear a French braid in high school, which was very unpopular for a boy in Michigan. I would, you know, like I define myself as being brave enough to go against the group. So, in some weird way, like, I can see myself, if, if it was the scenario we talked about, it's a suicide in front of your car, they've requested that the driver of the car eat them, family signs up, whatever, no moral issue, I can see myself doing it just to prove to everyone that I was not afraid to be judged.
1: You don't even like salmon.
2: No, I don't want to eat. That's what I'm being very clear. I have no desire to eat a human flesh. Realist, I believe my anthro teacher. I don't like horse, I don't think. He said it tastes like horse. My right. assumption is I don't like horse. But, but you know, there is something I can admit that is attractive about just saying, oh, I don't care if all you think I'm wrong. I've decided it's not amoral, and it's your problem to feel uncomfortable. That's a
1: slippery slope.
2: Well, again, I, I, my big caveat was that it's I've determined it's not amoral.
1: But because you've determined yeah, on your own barometer. doesn't mean, mm, okay, look sometimes there are reasons for societal norms. Sometimes they're really wrong and really off base and really bad. But sometimes they are there for a reason. They are there to keep our morals in check.
2: But I grew up in a time and a place where everything I did warranted someone calling me a fag or a woman. Hmm. So I disagree. I felt like I, I grew up in a net of societal norms that I disagreed with. So I actually... For the most part, I'm, I'm proud of the fact that I I never accepted that or that black people were this. That was a common net I was in, you know. So I disagree a bit. I think there's much of our society someone needs to stand up and say fuck that and be but brave. Be,
1: yes, but because of that, because you grew up in that environment, I feel like you're all or nothing. Like you're like, well, none of them are good, so I'm going to go in the opposition. No, too. I
2: got to determine that mm. they're moral or not. Like so, we we started this conversation. Which is, I knew it'd end up here, which is why I wanted to propose it, is, is it inherently amoral for us to do what every single animal does under the circumstance where there's no victim? There's nothing amoral about eating human flesh. It just isn't.
1: No, I I agree.
2: I agree as well. Yeah. So in that way where society would die, if they found out Dax Shepard ate a human. That's a little attractive to me to go oh i won't fall for it again like i've determined there's no victim here (laughs) and this is all my ego i'm admitting it this is my dumb (laughs) ego where
0: i'm brave and i'm proud of myself for having rejected those other norms yeah the one thing i did talk to bullshut about before we ended our conversation because we did talk a bit about the ethics of eating people and why certain societies don't eat people But I also just wanted to be like, okay, so like, are there any biological reasons we shouldn't eat each other, why we shouldn't cannibalize our own? And he said the points that he told me were, you cut down on your gene pool, and that's never Mm. a good thing in society, so that's a good reason not to eat people. Parasites are really easily passed on from the same species, so if we eat like a cow, there's less chance that like a cow parasite it gets into a human body, it's like, what the hell am I doing here, it dies. If you're eating other people, if you you get a parasite from another person, it knows what's in you because it's just come from a person. So that's a bad thing. And also there's the various um, neurological conditions you get if you eat other people, especially brains. Basically, your brain will turn into like a little cauliflower. So as well as the ethical (laughs) problems, there are also (laughs) some really biological issues about eating your own that do make it problematic potentially.
2: Well, I can clear up the first one easily. You just have to eat a family member.
1: <laughs> yeah. No, then that's incest. <laughs> then no, you're- but,
2: but you're not limiting the 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 diversity of genetics. The gene pool. Because yep. you've no, eaten yourself. So that clears up number one. Okay, number one. All I'm right. curious about number three, though. How is this known? Have they studied people's brains who ate other human brains? This seems unknowable
0: to me. Uh, yeah, no, in Papua New Guinea, the tribes there oh. that ate each other, they found these prions in the brain would basically turn your brain into cauliflower. So yeah, ah! it was a real oh. problem.
2: <laughs> the, by, ah! the, by, the, by the way, the brain already looks like intestines and now there's cauliflower. Oh my God, and, oh this my is God, so yeah. gross. Wow.
0: The trigger yeah, so they, found, they, they studied some tribes that had practiced cannibalism for years and are now non-cannibalistic because they learned about why they were dying and it's a horrible disease to get, um, Kuru. It's like, you do not want this. Ooh, that's a big reason not to eat people because yeah, your brain will just turn to a big mushy blob. But could that be avoided? Well, that's a big deterrent. <laughs> but it, could it be avoided by
2: just skipping the brain? Yeah, you could. You could. If okay. you
0: ate a bit of rib or something, you'd probably avoid that. Yeah, cheek. That might be a good. Is that too close to the yeah, blood brain barrier? i stay away. I'd stay away. I mean, yeah, neck down. <laughs> <laughs>
1: oh my god!
0: It's just something to keep in mind if you choose to go down that road. Yeah, which we do not condone. <laughs> and again, yeah, we and even I mean, even Nico said, "Look, don't try this at home." Yeah, like, even he's and if he's saying that, good God, so you need to yeah. listen. Well. Okay. And then wrote a cookbook, though. That that's a little
2: uh, yeah. It's a little bit on the nose. <laughs> the most generous thing I could say is that's mixed messages. That to me his fucking <laughs> cannibal cookbook is to me the identical to OJ's if I had done it book. <laughs>
1: Well, he's admitting to have done it, but I think he, he wanted the cannibal cookbook to be like in Spencer's, yeah, like in Urban
0: Outfitters or Spencer's,
1: like a little Uh like funny book.
0: Yeah. For like a a retirement
1: written written by a real cannibal.
0: I'd say if you're going to buy a book, Bill has a book coming out about the human heart called Pump. I think I'd probably purchase that over the cannibal cookbook, to be honest. It's like, I wish I'd known about him at school because he writes biology like it's a thriller or like the most oh. amazing. So so him writing a book about the heart, I think will be incredible. Like His book about cannibalism was amazing. When you look at the world around you through a cannibalistic mindset, it is kind of fascinating. We should have him on as a proper expert, as a thank you. He's got so many stories about so many bits of the human anatomy. It's great. And he's got, you know, he was excited to go to Dallas because of JFK. So like, he's one of us. Yeah, Yeah.
1: sure. Us guys.
0: (laughs) Yeah, he really is. Have you read The Emperor of All Maladies by chance? No,
2: I've got it sitting there to read. I haven't read it. Similarly, it's like you can't believe you're reading such a beautifully written book about the history of cancer. It transports you and you're like, wow,
0: yeah, if this is how they taught biology. Boy, everyone would have been interested. I know. And his whole thing, I mean, Bill lectures students, you know, it's part of his job. So his whole thing is just getting minds along on the ride. And he just does nothing worse than seeing a student drift off. So that's (laughs) his philosophy he does with like anything he writes is like keeping you on board. Because I think so many amazing things are lost in science just because science writers can't transmit that to a a slightly dumber brain and so to be able to do that is such a skill
2: okay now i just found the way to get out of problem two that he raised which is (laughs) if you cook the meat to temperature you're not going to deal with parasites they will not live so number one eat your family members we don't have a problem anymore number two cook it to a proper temperature there'll be no no parasites number three don't eat brains
1: he was saying to eat it raw it tastes better
2: well, that's what Nico was saying. Yeah. But, but biologist Bill was saying that that will lead to uh, ingestion right, but, of and, parasites.
1: But right. how could you eat it even if it was cooked to temperature? It'd be so tough.
2: So you're saying the purists don't even want to cook it.
1: I don't think you could cook it and eat it. Like it would be so chewy Charlie and tough. could.
2: He could slow smoke it. Like, okay. Charlie could smoke a butt cheek over the course of a couple days, and it would, it would get tender. He could put a fucking moccasin in there, and it would be tender oh my after three days. What do you feel like that was cultural appropriation? No. Oh, I, I didn't just, know what you were saying, oh my God. I just all Am I allowed it. to
0: say moccasin? Just the whole thing. I think the whole episode is, oh my the God. The whole thing is, <laughs> oh my God. Just stop God. Yeah. it. <laughs> uh, don't release it. <laughs> in his cookbook, have you leafed through it, or do you have any idea? What, like, Does it have any sauces that he recommends? No, I I don't have it. I think he's taken some different serial killers, sort of how I think he's gone through some like dharma recipes, and he's sort of lifted real testimony from real cases and thrown in some history in there.
2: Yeah, because I was going to say we know about his preferences, like throw the cookbook in the trash because he doesn't want it really cooked, and he doesn't want it seasoned, and he doesn't want it
0: with any sauces. We learned that earlier. Kind of ironic. The one thing I do know is I would definitely cook it if I ate someone. I could not raw is just it's not sashimi i just couldn't do it i couldn't i'll have a bit of sashimi delicious but not human sashimi not a chance I couldn't agree more with and you i'm and spicing have- that shit up like i'm putting a lot of spices on yeah, there a lot hot of hot sauce. sauce
2: a dry rub yeah yeah a nice dry rub yeah. and again it's got to be in the smoker minimally three days oh, boy, just cook it at like 140
1: okay, okay we can't give people all tits right, okay all right, all right. what an episode david so, so
2: is it so it's possible that next episode will be together yes
0: yeah, I'm hoping our episode on simulation theory will all be shared in the same oh. space, which will be very special. So yeah, I'm looking forward to it. I'm looking forward to the trip. It's a 12-hour flight, so I'll queue up lots of podcasts. I might watch the whole Lord of the Rings trilogy on the plane. <laughs> That's probably, we'll fill it up. Um, but yeah, I'll see you soon. I'll see you for the weekend, X. i I'll um, be in your basement or your spare room or whatever, oh. whatever you have there. Tent on the lawn. You'll be in the master's chambers, sleeping oh, between Kristen and I. Oh, brilliant! Yeah, Yeah, I'll I'll pack my I'll pack
2: my bags. I'm ready. I'm ready now. Last time you said it, and I forgot to write it down. What What is the name of the doc
0: you liked about the simulation? It's called a glitch in the matrix. A glitch in the matrix. I think it's on demand. You can watch it. It's in a few different places. It's a really fascinating film. The director made it during lockdown. But it talks to people who have had experiences of seeing glitches in The Matrix and sort of mm-hmm. breaks it down. So I'm I'm keen to hear from him and get some insight into the simulation that we're all living in. Because, I mean, life would make a lot more sense, I think, if it did turn out we were in a simulation. By the way, um, one of the guests on Clubhouse
2: today, uh, I think her name was Emma, armchair for Life. And she said, getting to ask me a question confirms Ashok's simulation. That's nice. Yeah, that's funny. Oh, Well, David cannot wait to see you fly safe get belligerent on the plane drink too much
0: yeah all those things
2: dispel all those rumors about
0: kiwi civility oh absolutely i'm gonna be a real mess on that plane can't wait
2: (laughs) okay (laughs) i love you
0: love you guys see ya boy